0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Professor Tim Jackson. Tim, welcome.
2: Hi, Andrea. Good to be here.
1: We will discuss about his latest book. This is "Post Growth: Life After Capitalism," published in 2021 by. Books. There are 227 pages uh, in 10 chapters. Professor Jackson is director of the Center for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity and professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey in the UK. He is a top scholar in economics with over 23,000 citations to his work that, across decades, has consistently discussed the moral, economic, and social dimensions of prosperity on what we know is a finite planet. His previous book, Prosperity Without Growth, was a Financial Times Book of the Year and was translated in 17 languages. He was also awarded the Hillary Laureate for the Exceptional International Leadership in Sustainability. You can find Professor Jackson easily online. You can hear, you can watch his speeches online, but more interestingly, you can also enjoy his literary work, for instance, Via the radio plays on BBC. Anyway, moving to this book, uh, Tim, can I ask you to tell us about the origin of the book? And maybe if you can contextualize this book in a few words, uh, talking about your career and your previous publications.
2: Yeah, thanks, Andrea. You 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 mentioned prosperity that grace, and I suppose uh, this this book is is really it's really partly a kind of sequel to Prosperity Without Growth but I always think I also I think of it as a a prequel in a way because um, Prosperity Without Growth was, was written originally f- as a report from the Sustainable Development Commission where I was Economics Commissioner for seven years um, back in the mid-2000s to around about 2011 and um, and and it was a it was actually formally a report to the Prime Minister, um, who at the time that uh, we delivered the report was Gordon Brown, and and the idea of the report uh, from an advisory group to the government was to you know set out logical arguments and to marshal the data and to look at the analysis and to come to a conclusion about. Uh, the feasibility of of economic growth on a finite planet and 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 it was as I say written for a policy audience now the history of that book's really interesting because although it was written formally for the government the government at the time actually found it uh, not not let's say as as welcome as I might have hoped they would in fact it landed on the prime minister's desk in um, early 2009 it, a few days before he was welcoming the g20 leaders to london um to talk about kick-starting growth in the in the wake of the global financial crisis so to have a, a kind of advisory body launching a report around about the same time questioning economic growth was really was really kind of not that uh welcome let's say so At first, the interesting reaction to that report was a big fat nothing. There was a deafening silence when we launched Prosperity Without Grace, I remember. And it was very, very curious because we'd done all the work in advance um, and we had spoken to every single government department about the contents of the report. We'd held multiple seminars. We'd talked to many, many journalists and absolutely nothing appeared on launch day. And, And the government, as I say, themselves really did not respond to the report at all um i think i, I went to uh, a couple of a couple of departmental seminars after the launch of the report um but they were they were not ones in which um the message of questioning growth was welcome and yet there was a, a kind of a weird thing that happened after that deafening silence which was that very slowly the report um was downloaded from the internet, became widely talked about, not just in the UK, but internationally. And as as you mentioned, you know, it ended up being translated into 17, I think it's 18 foreign languages now, and, and achieved a kind of a, a, a popular audience for whom it was never really written. And that audience included, yes, policymakers and some economists and some environmental activists, but also I gave talks in, in, in theaters and boardrooms and literary societies. I I found that there was a kind of a conversation there that people wanted to have about how, how our society works on a finite planet and how this idea of economic expansion can go on on a finite planet. And, and And yet I also sort of came across people who would tell me this is written for policy. This is a policy report. It's got graphs in it. I don't like looking at graphs. Um, I think you should write a book for the people who actually are really interested in this, in this message, in this discussion who want to take part. And it's much, much wider than a policy audience. So that, that's really what prompted me to write post growth. And as I say, it, it, It was partly about writing in a language that was for many more people than I wrote Prosperity Without Growth. But it was also about going back to some of the deeper roots, my own roots, my thinking, my own philosophical inquiry into uh, the kind of society that we've become And, and drawing on things which I'd written about 20 years ago sometimes, and drawing them all into a narrative, um, which would be, at least that was my hope, accessible to a wide audience.
1: You mentioned the reception by the Gordon Brown cabinet, and this book has amazing uh, reviews from both uh, colleague economists and politicians, if I can read. uh, Caroline Lucas, uh, MP, for the Green Party, a tour de force, sinuous, disruptive uh, masterpiece of measured rage and love.
2: I think that's Jonathan's Jonathan's quote. ah, Jonathan Parrott, yeah.
1: Yeah. He said by Enrico Giovannini, former um, economist at the OECD in Paris, Tim Jackson appealed to humanity's incredible ingenuity by replacing the tunnel vision of mainstream economics with a tour of how goodly lives for all are perfectly feasible, possible, without costing the earth. Anyway, moving to to the book, to this book. Eh? As you said, uh, there are no graphs here. And the book is perfectly accessible to non-economists and non-experts, of course. And I'm sure we'll have a very large diffusion like the previous book. But uh, can you define ecological economics for the non-expert audience?
2: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, ecological economics has a actually the the person who really was the key figure in ecological economics was a was an economist called Herman Daly who um, back in the 1970s when the Club of Rome was publishing its book on the limits to growth was also thinking about growth and also thinking about a, a steady state economy an economy that you know respected the limits of the earth and And that, I think, was one of the key features of ecological economics, that it places economics very firmly in the context of a finite planet, a planet with finite resources, with fragile ecosystems, um, and in which, actually, you have to think more carefully about the way that we consume those resources and damage those ecosystems if we care about future generations if we care about our children. And Herman had at the time, um, he was working actually around that time at the World Bank. Um, Again, (laughs) some of his messages were not always as welcomed as they might have been. Um, And he had a very, very sort of simple way of thinking about how we had to change our approach to economics because he said, you know, in the... In the early days of, of civilization, we, we were operating in, in what you might call an empty world. There were very few human beings and a, and a lot of planet. And as the economy expanded and expanded, we moved towards a situation in which we are a kind of full world with 8 billion people moving rapidly towards more than 10 billion people in a couple of decades. And we've got a, an economy that's expanded five times in the Period of the last few decades, and and that's a place where you have to think differently about economics. I think that's the point he was making. And as soon as you start to think differently about economics, um, you are drawn towards the question of growth because it's such a fundamental part of conventional economics, and it comes into question when you recognize the, the finiteness of the planet. And that's that's really, a, therefore, a, a kind of core question. The question of scale is a core question for ecological economics. And as soon as scale becomes important, then you also have to think very carefully about distribution, that who gets the benefits of the economic activity that happens in society. And those two questions, I think, scale and, and distribution, sort of um they they become the the defining features of of ecological economics
1: you were right in fact uh, caroline lucas wrote that the book is utterly inspiring urgent and eloquent plea for the radical change anyway but now that you mentioned Jonathan Porit i remember listening to a speech by him and he mentioned that often in fact always we try to we tend to forget how the demographics uh, issue is uh, crucial in talking about sustainability and i wonder if you agree with him that uh, this is a topic that we uh, tend to uh, dismiss
2: yeah i mean demographics here i think you're talking he's talking about um i i, I suspect he's talking about population growth yes. um which is that there are a lot more people on the planet than there were um when i was born and they're, they're getting a lot more very fast um as as time goes on, so so what? And he's absolutely right that population is a scaling factor in the impacts that we have on the planet. The more people there are, the more impact there is, and therefore, you know, thinking about the things that scale the economy up and increase that pressure on the planet is is very very important. I mean, I am not a demographic scientist myself, so I tend to start from a position in which I kind of accept the demographics that are set out, for example, by the United Nations, who sort of say that, you know, in their mid-range scenario, by 2050, there will be just over 10 billion people on the planet. And a lot of that population growth is kind of locked in, in the sense that the fertility rates are all very well known in various different areas, and they change quite slowly over time. But I but I also think that, you know, there's some easy... Easy gains there in the sense that there are a lot of unwanted pregnancies, and there are a lot of pregnancies that are are driven by um, actually a lack of access to education, a lack of access to contraception, a lack of access to any form of family planning, and a deep insecurity that comes from from extreme poverty. And so, and so, in that sense, I think. You know, Jonathan is right that we we, we ought to be paying attention to those places where actually um, people don't have access. And in particular, women don't have access to either the education or the facilities to manage their own facility and to think uh, for themselves really about how many children they want to have in the family and what kind of life they want for those kids i think it's very it's difficult because it's one of those you know it is one of those things which almost philosophically is is difficult to grasp you know which of the potential human beings that may or may not be in those 10 billion am i arguing should not be able to have the opportunity to be amongst that future population and and it doesn't make any sense you you know as an as a person who is living now i have no rights, no authority, no voice over the possibilities for other people to live on the planet. I do have a responsibility, it seems to me, to articulate ways in which whoever is on the planet has the opportunity to a good life that doesn't trash the planet for future generations. So I tend to focus, I think I tend to focus, you know, more on the on the on the question of what the good life is for the people who are here, rather than a lot on the demography of future populations, and I I, I struggle I have to say a little bit with that that question of the philosophical um, foundations of of who should and shouldn't have the right to a future life. I, I think we're not well placed to answer that.
1: Indeed. Uh, Moving back to the book, uh, it starts with a reflection on the past uh, few months, and uh, you refer to the 2019 uh, school strikes for climate, uh, Greta Thunberg that uh, even managed to uh, receive attention in Davos, and then the arrival of the pandemic that changed our priorities. In fact, even the 2009 crisis challenged the the growth movement uh, to some extent. So how do we keep the focus on sustainability when, for example, our own politicians have to deal with more contemporary and more, let's say, short-term problems? I,
2: I, think, it, I think in some sense, um, Andrea, what I'm saying in the book is actually that those short-term problems arise, to some extent at least, from the same sources as the long-term problems. Um, it it if you think about and one of the points that I make in the book, if you think about the pandemic and the lessons of the last year, tragic as they have been, um, the most profound of them really is that um, health, at a certain point, becomes more important than wealth. In fact, it's it's a much more it's a much clearer foundation for our prosperity. The concept of health than the concept of of wealth and. And it's a it's clearer in a very very interesting way. Whereas wealth is really about you know accumulation and having more and dreams of of unlimited uh, richness on, on on a planet that is obviously finite and therefore runs into trouble almost immediately as a concept. The concept of health is very very different. It's it's formulated much more around principles of balance. In fact. Um, you know, it was formulated very precisely in that way by Aristotle, um, where where his his definition of of the good life, the the, the life of well being, um, talked about what he then called v- virtue. It's not quite the same as how we think of virtue nowadays, where we think of it as sort of moral goodness. Virtue, in Aristotle's day, had a meaning that was closer to the meaning of kind of virtuosity, something someone who is who is a virtuoso is really good at what they do and and you can think of this quality of virtuosity as applying to you know a human being who's very good musician um, a butcher who's very good at the job that he does um, uh, a, a nurse who is a virtue virtuoso at caring for people you can think about all of these things and indeed about our economy itself as being as, as being fit, as being right, as being defined by virtuosity, as being defined by a good balance in relation to the task it's trying to address. And on either side of this, this, this virtue as Aristotle saw it are these vices and, and there is a vice of excess as much as there is a vice of deficit. So, and, and again, you know this is very relevant to the question that we're asking because in a in an a, a world where many many people are poor and 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 don't have adequate nutrition and don't have adequate shelter and can't have access to clean water and have no electricity or or clean fuel supplies actually having more really matters so for the poorest on the planet it makes sense to have a model of the economy that increases their income, increases their capability, increases their chances of a decent life. And then we also have a world, and this to me is a just extraordinary uh, statistic, which the World Health Organization has talked about, that there are now, we live in a world in which there are now more people dying from over nutrition from overconsumption, from diseases of affluence from lifestyle disease than are dying from under nutrition and it's a very very good example very simple example of that principle of health as a balance between having too little and having too much and it's a kind of you know it's a it's a kind of a metaphor in a way it seems to me and it was something that we learned very, very powerfully, very early on in the pandemic, that, that health actually had to be protected. There was a moment in the first few months, shortly after the, or at about the time that the WHO declared the, um, the pandemic itself to be a pandemic, when actually governments around the world understood that prosperity at that point in time meant focusing on health and compromising on wealth and and the lockdown if you like is it is a very precise metaphor of saying actually at this point we're not going to stimulate our economies beyond all possible means of of um, of maintaining health we're not going to stimulate our economies in terms of even um, pro- being the sole means of providing the livelihoods of people in our population instead we're going to put in place mechanisms that allow us to focus on health to close down parts of the economy to protect the people who are working in that economy through furlough schemes and even in fact to bypass the conventional measures and methods through which governments are supposed to pay for their spending by basically creating an overdraft on the central bank that allowed governments to move in whichever direction they needed to protect health and to and for that moment in time to set aside the imperative to increase wealth and, and that's a you know that's a very very fundamental lesson it speaks to. Um, it speaks to actually a quote from Thomas Jefferson from a couple of hundred years ago, and he said, the first and only task of good government is the health and happiness of the nation. And, and it's, a, you know, it's a quote that is 200 years old as the foundation for the American Constitution, but it's also a quote that is foundational in, in rethinking where we are at this point in time, a point in time at which actually we had compromised the mechanisms for care in the economy because of our relentless pursuit of productivity and economic growth, in which we had to reconceive our sense of what prosperity was very, very fast in order to protect health and set aside the pursuit of wealth. And in doing so, we learn something about this idea of prosperity as balance. Balance the health of ourselves as individuals, balance the health of our communities, and also interestingly, balance in the sense of the health of the planet, the balance of the planet itself has to become the focus of concern. So to me, those, those lessons from the last year are profound not just in thinking about society not just in thinking about the short term not just in thinking about the pandemic but actually in thinking about how a post-pandemic economy works towards an economy in which prosperity is 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 conceptualized as balance is conceptualized as health and that conceptualization helps us to to rethink how we tackle these bigger problems, the ones that uh, Greta Thunberg and the school strikes and Extinction Rebellion had begun to put on the table so very clearly before the pandemic struck. As we go out of the pandemic, we're going out with a knowledge actually of a different way of thinking about our economic system that will help us to deal with those problems.
1: Let me challenge you a bit, but in fact, you yourself mentioned this point on one of your speeches. Uh, there are millions of poor who need a very traditional growth model to escape poverty, and this has been so far the, the case of China, which uh, in terms of uh, not only uh, the handling of poverty, but also more broadly uh, the support of human development uh, has made an incredible Achievement uh, in the in the past decades. So, so uh, you argue that the shift in the economic paradigm to some extent is responsibility first of the rich in our planet. They need to address this first. But where do where do we put the line of those who should pay the cost, the cost of this shift which exists after all?
2: Um, I thought you were going to ask me a different question there, Andrea. I thought you were going to ask me where's the line between those... Who don't have enough and those have too much is that what you were asking me or were you asking me something different
1: well i, I mean i mean for example the the, the transition to let's imagine uh, more ecological vehicles uh, for some this is a very affordable uh, consumption choice for others it will mean not having a car for 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 some time and the same applies to i don't know if you put a taxation on air travel or a car on some more um, problematic forms of consumption so to to do the working class this is going to be more expensive in the west and in the developing world, of course, we cannot even ask this type of uh, sudden shift or paradigm.
2: No, I, I think, you know, who who is asking what is a really important question. So if, you know, if I'm a kind of rich guy who has it all on a, on a soapbox telling other people to stay poor, that is not. A message for anybody, um, and and it's not the message of of either prosperity without growth or post growth as a book. um The message is is rather that there is a responsibility on us all to think about the kind of life that we want, the kind of society that we want, and th- and there's a particular responsibility on those who are m- most well off to think about a society in which the dis in which everybody has the opportunities of a good life and although i i don't talk about mechanisms so much in post-growth as i say it's not a policy book i'm i'm you know, I do think there's there's quite a lot in Prosperity Without Growth that does talk about those mechanisms and does talk about, in particular, the question of distribution, the question of investment in clean technologies, in question of who invests and who pays for those technologies, the questions of, um, you know, providing access to finance, particularly on good terms, finance, not, not credit card finance at interest rates of 27, 28, 29, or even, you know, 50% a year as some of the poorest people in the world are subjected to, but actually credit uh, that is affordable and and easily investable in the solutions that will improve people's quality of life, and that that those are you know they're really really important mechanisms um, for if if you like the distribution question that ecological economics has to face in a world in which you can't just expand the pie for everybody you have to think about who gets what and how it's distributed and as a society and as a government you have to think about the mechanisms for distributing it so that that would be my my sort of first answer to your question but i would also i kind of think in a way that's more of a prosperity without growth question in terms of the fact that it's a question related to policy and the philosophical underlying question that I was rather looking at in post growth around there is is kind of what kind of life is that what kind of life is it that everybody can afford? There's a philosopher called Immanuel Kant who has a, a categorical imperative, which is that you shouldn't do anything that isn't that you couldn't replicate, essentially, for everybody on the planet. And so, you know, if everyone on the planet was Jeff Bezos, you know, we would have been stuffed a long time ago. If everybody on the planet is a poor person in Bangladesh, um, everybody is probably very, very miserable in some in some circumstances because we have we don't have enough food we don't have enough housing we're subject to flooding we have very very insecure livelihoods that's not a form of of aspiration for a good life and so the question really that post-growth tries to deal with is is what is a form of life a form of aspiration that could create a good life for everybody and and it can't be just about material expansion and therefore knowing that it can't be just about material expansion you move to those places where actually you know our aspirations are equally profound we have aspirations for creativity for relationship for community for purpose for meaning and and talking about those aspirations and delivering those aspirations in ways which are less material, less ecologically damaging, and more psychologically satisfying and socially coherent. That was really the task that the post-growth uh, set out to do. So, so, so not so much talking about the mechanisms, but talking about that underlying philosophical shift from thinking about the good life as being defined by having as much stuff as we might want to a situation where we're thinking about it as as the pursuit of of fullness and meaning
1: I can't decide whether it is more uh, difficult to imagine a world with new mechanisms or a world uh, <laughs> where the definition of life and so on is uh, uh driven by yeah, different, I think uh, philosophical I think that's
2: <laughs> It's a good point. I mean, you have to do, you obviously have to do both, you know, once you've, and I I do a little bit of this, not very much in post growth, because it isn't a book about mechanisms, but you once you've, you know, figured out that there might be a, a path for human beings towards a non material fulfillment that is actually more satisfying than capitalism has to offer once once you've defined that and sketched a vision for it and talked about its dimensions you then do have to think about mechanisms and what kind of world would make that possible for people
1: uh, now this brings me to the next question i had in mind uh, on page one two one you have uh, um, you you mentioned if um, you refer to a study uh, an essay by um, Keynes of 1930, where he appears clearly interested in what should come after the immediate actions and growth needed to overcome the Great uh, Depression. Um, by the way, there are also beautiful uh, sentences and quotes by Keynes that uh, are similar to what Jefferson, that you mentioned earlier, uh, wrote. So uh, now we have in mind that Keynes is super interested in growth. Um, uh, but in fact, uh, as you as you point out, uh, this, is, this is not necessarily the case. But, uh, but your work is uh, an attempt to change the dominant ideas and so to to contribute to a shift in in the economic paradigm and in the ideas that guide us and our uh, policies and even our own lifestyles but uh, my question is uh, where this big shift is going to come from uh, is there enough intellectual contributions now to to favor this or are we still stuck to old paradigms because even now um, the most progressive politicians and economists what they most often do they refer for example to Keynes but Keynes is uh, really belongs to to a different world now
2: yeah I think that's a very good point I mean Keynes is a is a sort of was, a, a, you know, a fantastic economist because of the breadth of the way that he thought, and because of the the depth of of his thinking, and because of the relationship between that thinking and the time that he was in. But it was a very very different time. That's that's absolutely that's absolutely right, and we live in a different world. And I I often think it would be kind of fascinating, you know, to have Keynes here now just to see what he would make of it all Um, (laughs) you know what would be his prescriptions and I mean obviously there's a lot of post-Keynesian work post-Keynesian economics that that draws on the inspiration of that and attempts in a way to fulfill that sort of you know imaginary project of a Keynes looking at the kinds of challenges that we face at the moment but but as you say I mean he was at that time someone who could see beyond growth he, he saw growth as a necessity in the structures of that day to create the employment that was essential to protect people's livelihoods and to lift uh, the world out of the Great Depression and into something um, that that would be more more livable and. You know, that was a tough path. It came through the Second World War, through the post-war slumps in various places, through uh, a, a sort of boom then in technology um, and productivity that in the 1960s and early 1970s was at a kind of a peak. And and it looked as though it would deliver us, you know, this kind of enormous um expansion in economic activity that could go on forever because we could use some of the resources to invest in efficiency to give us technologies that would be cleaner and cleaner and allow us to continue along that path. But, uh, but quite a few things happened you know, along the way of that, partly that peak in productivity was purchased through an, a massive expansion in fossil fuels. Those fossil fuels created the problems that we know around climate change. We managed also on the way to have very inefficient bits of our, our technology models that that destroyed the quality of soils, the quality of our rivers, that polluted our oceans. And we invested in some kinds of products for example, plastic, I suppose being the most ubiquitous one, that found their way into every part of our lives and out of our lives, into the tiniest, furthest corners of the planet. And 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 so that ex- massive expansion, and I telling I'm sort of telling it deliberately as a kind of story of after Keynes, because it does tell us why, in some sense, why growth became so important to us. Because it was founded in that desire to protect livelihoods and to create jobs, and also why it became dysfunctional. But there was a, a third really interesting feature of that kind of long history um, that is my answer to your question. I'm coming around to it very slowly, Andrea. And and it is that that actually the the boom in productivity of the nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies uh was a short, sharp thing in um, particularly in the advanced economies and the trend in labor productivity over the last five decades has actually been a declining one. Labor productivity growth was at a peak of around about five percent growth per year in um, the mid 1960s in the UK. and before the pandemic, almost all of that labour productivity growth had gone, and there were points, actually, at which labour productivity growth went into reverse. We were becoming less productive. Now, that... You know, you talk about me wanting to kind of change the way we think, and it's true, I do want us to change the way we think. But that is a serious challenge to an economy that is based around economic growth because you don't really have economic growth in any meaningful way if you don't have labor productivity growth. And the labor productivity growth trend that would deliver us growth from forever is just not there. We don't see that in the aggregate data. We see a declining labor productivity growth trend in which actually, even before the pandemic, there was very little in the way of labor productivity growth. And that's something that economists interestingly do, do take seriously. It's, it's it, They have to take it seriously because it means that we have to start looking at a world in which that labor productivity growth may not be there into the future. It may not give us the basis for that continual economic growth. And if we're not prepared for that world, if we don't understand its institutions, if we don't understand the relationship between the privates and the public sector in that world, then we are in a very, very dangerous position because we've based our economics on a sense that even Keynes, when he was talking about it in 1930, knew was going to be temporary. And we haven't done the work that he called on us to do, which is to think about what economics might mean after that period of growth is over. So my call, rather than sort of saying you know i'm rushing against the tide of all these people who think that growth is the way to go and i just think growth isn't the way to go that's a sort of that's a little bit of a you know that's not quite how it is because actually what i'm saying particularly at this point is that growth you thought you were going to live off forever guys hasn't been there consistently for almost half a century Isn't it time to think about that situation and how we respond to it?
1: We are running out of time, so I'll put two questions together, if you don't mind. On page two of the book, you mentioned Bob Kennedy and the beginning of his campaign, where he calls for university students to rebel, to build a better future, almost to be violent, to achieve some change. And now uh, my question is, uh, do you see your students being uh, uh, willing to do so? Because my students are not rebelling at all. The last rebellion we had was 10 years ago of, of when in the UK we introduced the, the fees and the university programs. And uh, I don't see much. Uh, hope uh, on, on this side. And the final question is, moving to the very end of the book, page 166, Dolphins in Venice. So we, you described how the pandemic has contributed to clear our skies and the waters of the lagoon in Venice. Uh, but now, I observe that there is a, a pressure to go back to our old habits of consumption. And some social scientists are even forecasting that there may be not only an economic boom, but also a cultural boom, something like what happened in the 20s with people rushing to consume, but also to enjoy music, arts, and so on. So are we back to square one? Growth, recession, okay, now let's put Keynes back, growth, recession, okay, let's postpone again the climate emergency. What do you expect from the reaction, the aftermath of the pandemic?
2: So, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry Andrea, I was so busy, um, caught up in thinking about the second question, I forgot what the first one was. What was the first <laughs> one again? The,
1: so the first one, uh, the comment about uh, Bob oh, Bobby Kennedy? Kennedy, yeah, yeah. And, and the, uh, yeah, the students.
2: I think, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I'm not, I, I'm pretty sure that Bobby Kennedy was not um, suggesting violence, so so his use of the word rebellion was very definitely a, a reference to actually what were mostly peaceful sit-in protests from a generation, a countercultural generation who were opposed to violence, very specifically opposed to the violence of the um, of the Vietnam War at the time. So, and and actually, we know from the way that, for example, Kennedy spoke after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. On the fourteenth of April, nineteen sixty-eight, that you know his approach was was actually a very very sort of peaceful one. He believed in civil disobedience for those who were suffering in society as a result of uh, government actions and social structures that were unequal and socially unjust, and so it was it was. Um, an exhortation to resist that, to engage in in what philosophers actually, since John Locke, have called civil disobedience and 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 have recognized civil disobedience as a very legitimate part of political democracy. Um, and and that essentially, you know that is a that is a call from from Bobby Kennedy. It's a call. That has been reiterated recently uh, and exercised recently, and most astonishingly exercised by by quite young kids. I'm what I'm kind of fascinated by is what's going to happen when the school strikers get to university, because I, I, you know, you might be right about our students and our cohorts at this point in time. They're subjugated by debt and by fragile job markets and by unrealistic expectations of teaching and now as well by the pandemic and they're not really in a position an easy position in which to be the rebels that bobby kennedy was calling for but at some point presumably that cohort of you know greta's school strikers is gonna arrive on the doorsteps of our courses, you and I, and um, <laughs> it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I've watched the, co- I've, I'm long I've been enough in academia long enough to kind of watch these different cohorts go by with different senses. And I watched, you know, there was, um, there was a really interesting kind of degrowth spike. In the years between the financial crisis and the pandemic, when people suddenly, you know, began to come into my my ecological economics courses, wanting to talk about nothing but degrowth, and and then that sort of faded away. And then we had a donut economic spike um, when Kate Rayworth published her lovely book a few years ago, and and so I'm really I'm expecting that we'll get a Greta spike in a couple of years' time or so, and um, looking forward to that. Um, the, the 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 question the last chapter the last chapter started uh, I mean when when I'm I don't want to kind of. Do any give too many spoilers here about what dolphins in Venice is about um, but it isn't entirely about some rose-tinted vision of uh, you know a world without pollution because everything's shut down and aren't we all happier in lockdown anyway in fact it's the it's the very opposite of that in a way um, I, I I do think you know I do think we learned some lessons about that there was a, there was a very interesting study in the early part of the pandemic where um, people were asked if there were aspects of lockdown they might want to keep. And the sort of astonishing 80% of people managed to find something about those new conditions that they felt were preferable to the way they lived before. And it ranged from, you know, less traffic on the street, fewer contrails in the sky, cleaner air to breathe, a bit more time with family and friends. And of course, some of that did begin to pale as the lockdown went on and came back in various guises, second lockdown, third lockdown, uh, a a shadow pandemic of uh, domestic abuse and mental illness accompanied that. So it wasn't ever all that it was cracked up to be. But did we find some things in the pandemic that spoke to a vision of a different kind of life? I think we did. And your challenge is, and it's a very legitimate challenge is there any chance at all of that of that going on is there any chance at all of that continuing will we go back to a boom of consumption and 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 an even more challenging point you're raising is is, will that boom of consumption will be a cultural boom that will be greater than ever um You know, it would be nice to think it was a different kind of consumption boom. It would be nice to think it was cultural and creative in its extent. One of my points in the book is it's very difficult to create that cultural boom for everybody when you are living inside a growth model. And there are very specific reasons to do with that, which again go back to that pursuit of labor productivity that I was talking about before, because it tends to squeeze out some of the activities that give us the best quality of our life, that talk about, for example, care and craft and uh the 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 work of the cultural sector which which is often slow it's not a fast sector pursuing labor productivity as fast as it can it's about the time that we as human beings bring to the labor market in the service of other people the time of the nurses caring for their patients the the time of the craftsmen creating beautiful objects the time of the artists and the musicians rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing to pursue a, a beautiful product and 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 all of that actually is is a kind of gives us a sense of of an economy that could be vibrant in that cultural way but must not be co-opted actually precisely in that way that you spoke about from the 1920s the 19 20s was a kind of period in which there was a sort of a cultural elitism that was available only to a few people in society that was deeply unequal that wasn't shared that was built on almost on the erosion of values and that led directly um to the rise of political and social systems that were profoundly dangerous so it's you know my i really if that's kind of the world that we're moving into after the pandemic I would be scared but I do think I believe and and in intellectual and philosophical terms I know that there is a vision actually that comes out of the lessons of the last year that is much more profound much more humane much more egalitarian and ultimately much more fulfilling and and that's really what i've tried to articulate in post growth
1: thank you very much for your time tim Uh, we spoke with professor tim jackson and we discussed about his last book post growth life after capitalism published in 2021 by polity books this is a beautiful book very accessible and i'm sure it will inspire many readers thank you very much for your time tim
2: thank you Andre.